Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for being here and joining us for this class. Uh, we are here today for the final installment of Structure and Meaning in High Holy Day Liturgy with Rabbi David Silber as part of Drisha's Elul programming. Uh, Rabbi Silber is the founder and dean of Drisha. Uh, he founded this organization a number of years ago and has been uh, the recipient of a number of awards and has lectured widely on, on Tanakh, on Torah, on Jewish education since then. Uh, we have been exploring both the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur davening throughout this series. Uh, so today, concluding that, we will be spending some time finishing up Shofrot, uh, finishing what we were discussing during the last session, and then moving on to various pieces of uh, the Yom Kippur liturgy. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so in the uh, today's time that we have together, I would like to focus primarily on Yom Kippur. Let me begin by saying that the central prayer of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, if you had to pick out a central prayer, certainly Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as well, is the Musaf service of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In the repetition of the Musaf, uh, after the Kedusha, after the uh, liturgical poems that are added, the Piyutim, the uh, Chazan uh, asked permission to pray. Actually asked permission twice, but the shorter permission, it has a, a nusach actually of Rishut. There are several Rishuyot during the day, and Shachri does a Rishut in a, a request to pray in Musaf as the same nusach. That's how it starts. That's the tune for the Rishut. And afterwards, on Rosh Hashanah, we have the three main blessings, Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot. We have discussed uh, quite a bit about those blessings. Each one is a separate blessing. Each one is connected to the sounding of the shofar. Each one is a set of verses. And the we follow a sense, we follow the view that in each of these blessings, we have 10 verses from the Bible. Three from the Torah, three from the Kituvim, Psalms in this case, three from the prophets and the 10th verse from the Torah. Each of these three sections has a statement section and a request section. So structurally, they're very similar. The first has the word Melech, God's kingship. The second is Zichronot, to remember, which as we discussed has three different meanings in the blessing, to judge, to protect, and to establish a, uh, a covenant. So Cher Habrit, and that's the main theme, apart from judgment is covenant. And then shofar, shofrot, in which we mentioned the shofar, uh, there the theme is revelation, God's presence in the world. And again, a set of verses. I just wanted, I wanted to focus more on Yom Kippur, but I did want to say something about shofrot, and that is, and actually something very interesting about the shofrot section. The shofrot section, of course, has three parts. It has the beginning talks about the revelation of Sinai, the sound of the shofar that was heard at Sinai, 
and there were three verses from the Torah, which mentioned the shofar of Sinai. Then you move to the middle set of verses, which are verses from the Psalms. And finally, the three verses from the prophets and the concluding verses from the Torah. And there's something interesting about the verses in Shofrot. Let me mention two of the things that are interesting about the verses in Shofrot. First of all, when you get to the middle verses of Shofrot, that is the verses from the Psalms, to our surprise, we have more than 10 verses because we have three from the Torah, we have one at the end, four, three from the prophetic writings is seven, when it comes to the verses from the Psalms, you have three verses, but after you have the three verses from the Psalms, you have a, an entire Psalm, which is the last Psalm, Psalm 150. And that Psalm, of course, is part of the regular service of every day. It's the last Psalm. It talks about praising God in God's sanctuary, in the heaven of glory, etc. And the way one praises God in the psalm is not just through words, but through music. And amongst the musical instruments is the shofar. Mentions a variety of musical instruments, drum, strings, flute, cymbals. It mentions, in addition, the blast of the shofar. It mentions take our shofar. But this is an extra psalm, an extra, an extra mention of shofar. Why is it here? So what's interesting is actually Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, suggested that Psalm 150 is not so much another verse from the Psalms that mentioned Shofar as it is a response to the previous verses. And what he meant by that was that when you look at the structure of the Shofrot, you notice that the Shofrot are structured in terms of past, present, and future. The, uh, the first three verses are about receiving the Torah at Sinai. And that's, of course, three things that happened in the past. The three verses from the prophets are prophecies about a messianic time, about the future. And uh, the middle verses then presumably talk about the present. One might say Rosh Hashanah itself as a holiday of, of revelation, and I would add a holiday of revelation because Rosh Hashanah is a holiday both of prayer, which is a revelation. The idea of prayer is standing before God, standing in God's presence, and also judgment, which is a kind of presence of God. God is present in judgment. God is present in the court. So since we've spoken about God in the present, we are standing before God, one response to standing before God, and the Torah speaks of this as rejoicing before God. The Torah says, you shall rejoice before God. And as a measure of our rejoicing, there is song. So the song, Rabbi Soloveitchik suggested, is a response to the statement, we are presently standing before God. The idea of Rosh Hashanah is standing before God. 
and the soul is a response. I thought that was a very interesting observation. I want to make another uh, observation about Psalm 150. This comes under the general heading of, I would call it wild speculation, but one is permitted to speculate, provided you know that it's wild speculation. And that is, there's something interesting about the verses. By that I mean that the <coughs> position we are presumably following, the recitation of verses on Rosh Hashanah, 10 verses, three from the Torah, three from the writing, three from the prophets, the 10th verse from the Torah. And the verses, and the Gemara speaks of this, the verses should contain the word of the blood. In other words, in Malchiot, the word melech. In Zichronot, the word zizkar, to remember. In Shofrot, the word shofar. What's interesting to note is that in two of the three blessings, the 10th verse from the Torah, which should have the word uh, of the blessing, doesn't have it. In Malchiot, the 10th verse is Shema Yisrael, and that doesn't have the word Melech. The Gemara already discusses this. We can't find another verse in the Torah that has Shema Yisrael in it. So we, uh, so we, we that has Melech in it, so we use Shema Yisrael. But what's interesting is that in the uh, in the blessing of Shofrot, the tenth verse, the verse that's found in the middle of the request at the very end, is not about Shofrot at all. The verse, the last verse, the thirtieth verse, as it were, the third of the ten, is a verse from the Book of Bamidbar which does not talk about Shofrot but talks about the trumpets, the silver trumpets that Moshe fashioned and were sounded on various occasions, including, in the words of the Torah, on your days of joy, your festivals, on the new moons, you are to, to, to sound the trumpets, over your burnt offerings and your uh, feast offerings. If you a remembrance before God, I am the Lord your God. It's interesting. It doesn't have the word shofar. The Ramban, Nachmanides, claims in his commentary on Rosh Hashanah, there are those who say this verse says the Ramban. It's a mistake. What the Ramban doesn't say is, if it's a mistake, what do you put in its place? Because in, in point of fact, there is no fitting verse in the Torah, apart from the three verses that talk about the revelation of Sinai, which have the word shofar. Shofar never appears in conjunction with Rosh Hashanah. The Torah never says on Rosh Hashanah you sound the shofar, never says it. Shofar is mentioned at Sinai, and shofar is mentioned in the Jubilee year, the 50th year, when the slaves go free, when properties return to their original owners, there it says shofar. So what verse we would have over here, it's hard to know. The Ramban, there are different traditions of what the Ramban held. In any event, what I wonder about is that in those blessings in Malchiot and Shofrot, where the tenth verse does not align with what the Gemara says, in both of those blessings, two of the three, we have additional verses 
in the in the in, in the writing section. In Shofrot, we have the 150th Psalm, and in Malchil, we have additional verses from Psalm 24. Mihuzem Melech HaKavod, Sushtarim Rashechem, Vyavo Melech HaKavod, the King of Glory should enter. And those verses are additional verses. I'm just wondering if the practice was to compensate for the missing last verse by adding another verse or verses earlier to get to the number 10, which is a significant number. I'm just wondering whether that wasn't the actual practice. It doesn't necessarily align exactly with what the Talmud says. That doesn't mean it wasn't done. In any event, the last verse is about the trumpets and the trumpets, the Chatzot are interesting because even though they're not a chauffeur, they're trumpets, but it's in the section of the Chatzot Zrot where the Torah distinguishes between Tekiah and Trua. The Torah, about Rosh Hashanah, the Torah never says Tekiah altogether. It says Yom Trua Yerachem, Zichron Trua. It doesn't say Tekiah. The distinction between the broken sound of the Trua and the plain sound of the Tekiah, that's in the section of the trumpets. And in fact, the verse that is cited, the 30th verse, the last verse of the Rosh Hashanah uh, service, mentions both Utikatem Bachatzotzrot. Um, it, it, it talks about, it, it mentions specifically Tekiah, Utikatem Bachatzotzrot. And the end of the blessing is Atoshomea Kol Shofar Umazin Shua V'yendomorach. In the very end of the blessing, it's not the verse, but the blessing, it refers to Trua, and the blessing is, Blessed are you, O, o Lord, Shomea called Truat Amo Yisrael Barachamim. So actually, the Tkiah is in the, ver, in the verse, and the Trua is in the blessing, and the Chatzot wrote are both Tkiah and Trua, depending on the circumstance. On the festival days, happiness, that's a Tkiah. In time of crisis, the Torah said, Bahari Otem Bachatzot wrote, you are to make the truer sound. And specifically, since the Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot are embedded in the Musaf service, the service about the Musaf sacrifice, the additional sacrifice, it is fitting in a sense that the last verse takes us back to the sacrifices. And the verse speaks about the burnt offerings, the Al-Zivcheshal and the feast offerings. So that's that's the question of the last verse. Apparently, in our practice, we're not terribly concerned that the last verse doesn't mention the shofar. It does connect to the sacrifices. It does recall Tekiah and Trua. So the common practice is that this verse is recited, and perhaps appropriately so, though it doesn't align perfectly with what the Gemara seems to say. What is interesting and I'll conclude the Shofrot with this. I want to get to Yom Kippur. But what's interesting is when you look at the Shofrot section, which talks about the Shofar, and you see that actually in the course of the verses, the, the, this blessing presents Shofar in a different way. The first three verses, which talk about the revelation of Sinai, when we stood at Sinai and heard the Shofar, with thunder and the lightning and Kol HaShofar, the response of the people who stood at Sinai was to be afraid, and not only to be afraid, but 
The people trembled and stood far back. And the commentary said they stood even farther back than they were supposed to stand. There was, there was the appropriate distance that they had to keep. When they heard the shofar, they were frightened and stood even further back. And in fact, it's interesting that the beginning of this quite beautiful blessing speaks midrashically that when God descends upon Sinai, not just the people are shaking and the mountain is shaking, but the world is shaking. The entire world is shaking when God descends on Sinai. So the shofar in the beginning of the blessing uh, creates in us a sense of anxiety or fear, trembling. That's how the shofar is represented. But as we go through the blessing, the shofar takes on a different sense. So for example, in the section I mentioned before, Psalm 150, it's part of, a, it's part of the orchestra. It's part of the music. It's a musical response to God's presence. And that's quite different from trembling and fear and standing back. And then when we get to the last section, which are the, ver the verses from the prophetic writings. The prophetic writings are at the end. Even though normally we talk of Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, that the Nevi'im, the, the prophetic writings, have a higher standing, a higher sanctity than the, than the, than the Psalms and the Ketuvim and Eov. That's how it's understood generally. Torah is the holiest. Then Navi, then Ketuvim. But when it comes to the liturgy here, it's Torah, Ketuvim, Nevi'im. Nevi'im are at the end because Nevi'im talk about the future and typically prophecies of consolation, of redemption. So here we have this Nevi'im at the end. And the last verse is very striking. The last verse, the ninth verse, that is to say, the last verse of the statement section from Zechariah is the following. The Ne'amar is, is written, V'adonoi awayhem yera'eh. That's the verse. The water will appear over them. God's arrow shall go forth like lightning. The Lord God shall sound the shofar and march amid the storms of the south. The Lord of hosts shall protect them. So the shofar, it's interesting, in the last verse, God is traveling through the storm with the shofar, but the shofar is described as representing God's protection. Yagain Avehem. So the shofar reminds us about protection, shielding and protection. Then interesting is, after the verse is cited, the blessing continues, Yisrael So God the prayer is, you should protect your people Israel, Bishlomecha, with your peace. And it's actually very interesting that we add to the verse, protect Israel with your peace, because we know that all the blessings end with peace. All of our blessings end with peace. Sim Shalom is the last blessing. Even in our Birkat Amazon, we, we Ashkenazim and Hashem Yivarech Shalom. We're always aspiring for peace. And since this is the last verse, the 29th verse or whatever, perhaps it's marked over here in the, in the, in the, in the blessing 
by, re by reminding us of the ultimate hope, the aspiration of But what's happened over the course of this blessing is that the shofar has been transformed from something which, which, which creates in us anxiety and fear and dread, trembling. And through the course of the blessing and the course of the verses, the shofar becomes an instrument of song, of joy, and finally, kind of assurance, a sense of protection that we are under God's protection. And of course, we end with, with peace. So the shofar, the blessings actually, not just a right recitation of verses, uh, the, the blessing is intended to think to move us on a certain path and to try to understand that there's a dynamic within the blessings. That's true of the shofrot. It was certainly true of the zichro note, which begins with judgment of the all-knowing judge. And then the rest of the blessing is about how one can be vindicated in judgment. How is that possible? Calling upon the idea of our own not forgetting and seeking and longing, which produces in God a similar reaction of longing and seeking. And finally, the idea of covenant, which is central, to see ourselves as part of something bigger than ourselves. We're part of something big. We have aspirations. And because of our aspirations, we see ourselves as part of a community and God will judge the community differently than God might judge any particular individual. So there is the dynamic that's taking place within these blessings. And I tried to some extent to uh, connect to that. I think it's very helpful on Rosh Hashanah. Uh, to get a sense of not just the words, but actually the movement within the blessings. So this is Rosh Hashanah, and this is all introduced. And of course, each of the blessings, we have the shofar. And this is introduced by the Chazan's request to pray. And Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, one of the interesting features is that the Chazan, on more than one occasion, asked permission to pray. So we have that on Rosh Hashanah. I can't get into that right now. Let's look at Yom Kippur for a moment and see how it functions on Yom Kippur. So structurally, structurally Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah are similar. That is to say, the Musaf service of Yom Kippur has the repetition of the Amidah. There are many songs and poems that are added in, and they're typically added in surrounding the third blessing of HaMelech HaKadosh, Kedusha. And around the Kedusha, in the third blessing, we have the great majority of these poems. This year, I think in many services, because of the pandemic, there will be, uh, in most places, I think, if not all, a shortening of the, of the service. So we're going to pick and choose, and presumably, we can pick and choose what is essential. We should always pick and choose the essential, the ikar, as opposed to the tafel. And it provides us with an opportunity to uh, reflect upon what is central to the service of Rosh Hashanah and what is central to the service of Yom Kippur. What's central to Rosh Hashanah is actually obvious. Malchiot, Sichmonot, Shofrot, and the Shofar is essential from a classical standpoint. All the other poems, as powerful as they may be, 
are not essential. They're add-ons. That's clear. Now, what is essential to the service of Yom Kippur? So Yom Kippur has five services. And I wanted to focus in on the Musaf of Yom Kippur, which is parallel structurally to the Musaf of, of Rosh Hashanah. And the Musaf of Yom Kippur, to see what's essential, we see what comes after the Chazan asks permission to pray. After the Chazan says, and that's asking permission. And then the Chazan begins the essential part of the Yom Kippur service. And Rosh Hashanah, it's Malchiot Zichronot Shofro. The parallel to Yom Kippur is also, are also three things. And in the time that we have, I'll try to get to some of the important, uh, important uh, ideas that are found in the three essential prayers of Yom Kippur in Musaf. So first of all, after the Chazin asked permission to pray, we have what's called the uh, Avoda. The Avoda is a description of the service of the high priest on Yom Kippur, which is also the Torah reading in the morning of, of Yom Kippur, chapter 16 of Ayikra. We simply read what the Torah says about the service on Yom Kippur, the service of the high priest, the entering into the Holy of Holies, the incense, the scapegoat sacrifice, the sorry Lazazel, was described in detail in the Torah reading. And it's described poetically in the Avoda. The Avoda is not recited in the silent Amida, it's only recited in the repetition. And now, it's interesting to look about the Avoda. When I say the Avoda, the description of the service of Yom Kippur, much of which is carried out by carried out by the high priest, the Kohen Gadol. So there are a couple of interesting features. First of all, there are several different poems that are written describing the service, including some that are ancient. Very, very, very ancient. And others pick up on the ancient descriptions of the service, and there are different poetic compositions. Essentially, the Ashkenazim, for the most part, have a poem which begins with the words Amitz Kalach. It's a difficult medieval composition. In my opinion, it's one of the most beautiful liturgical pieces that we have in our service period. It's difficult as it is, it's awesome. That's one, that's one poem. The Eidot Mizrach have a different poem, also very powerful, called Ata Konanto. It's simpler. And there are interesting differences between the two versions. That is to say, and this is an important point, the earliest, earliest Atta Konanta, not the one that is said today, but the earliest one, very strikingly, is simply a virtual translation of the first seven chapters of the Mishnah in Tractate Yoma. The first seven chapters of Tractate Yoma as opposed to the eighth chapter, which talks about the rules of Yom Kippur today, the fasting, etc. Tshuva, repentance, fasting. That's the last chapter of Yoma. That's what they're learning in Israel and Elul and the Drisha program in Israel now. But the first seven chapters, those are a description of the service of, 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 the, of, the, of, of Yom Kippur. And the Avodah was simply a translation of the Mishnah. It's interesting 
and the and these the poems we recite today are essentially the same thing. They're essentially based upon the Mishnah. Now there are certain differences of opinion in the Mishnah, in the in the Talmud, amongst the commentaries on the Talmud, about how precisely this service was carried out in all its many details. The Seder Avodah of Yom Kippur, and they are reflected actually in the different compositions. So one composition reflects a whole one point of view about many of the issues of the order, etc. And the other avodah re reflects a different point of view. And it's interesting when you study it to compare the two, to examine the two compositions, the two main compositions, and point out many of the, many of the differences that reflect the disagreements about exactly how the service was carried out. But the first point I wanted to make was that what, what is parallel to the Rosh Hashanah, Malthiot, Sichronot, and Shofrot, is the, starts with the Avodah. And the Avodah, unlike Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah, it's all about reading verses from the Bible. The Rosh Hashanah service is verses from the Bible. The Avodah is the Mishnah. And that, I, in my view, is very interesting because, and very telling. Because Rosh Hashanah primarily, the theme of Rosh Hashanah is God's kingship. It's a day that we talk about God, which most of us don't do very often. But it's, a, it's, a, it's defocusing on ourselves and a focus on living in God's world. And talking about God in general, our tradition is reluctant to say too much about God. Or certainly many elements of our tradition are very reluctant. Because what do we know? And if we say it will never be enough anyway. So maybe silence is the best course. So one way we can speak about God is by using God's own language. So on Rosh Hashanah, the text of the service primarily on a day which speaks of God's kingship is God's word. God's word as we understand it through God's prophets and those inspired by God, the Kitzvah HaKodesh, the Nevi'im, the Torah, of course, that's Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur is a different kind of day. Yom Kippur, the focus is not on God. The focus on Yom Kippur is on the human being and our possibilities and our attempt to reflect on our past, our commitments to the future, our resolutions, our aspirations. In short, what we call tshuva, repentance. So it's a human-centered day. So on the human-centered day, the primary text is the human text. And the human text is not the written Torah. The human text is our interpretation of Torah, what we call Torah Shabbat Peh. One fine example is the Mishnah. And in this connection, I have pointed out myself many times that what is in particular striking is how we begin Yom Kippur. The, we begin Yom Kippur, essentially, and this is pretty much a universal Jewish custom, that when, it, when we enter into Yom Kippur with the recitation, with the symbolic annoying of vows, the, the, the liturgical poem we call Kol Nidre, where the symbolic court stands up and forgives the people for vows made last year, vows that we took rashly or vows that we took without understanding the potential consequences, that's Kol Nidre. 
It's a solemn service. It has a very particular nusuch to it. It's very powerful. And of course, probably more Jews attend Kol Nidre service than any other service. And when you think about it, it's very striking because what it is is a very dry formula where this, the so-called court, the symbolic court, is a knowing vow. So what is the point? Why does this have such a, a hold on us? Different theories have been advanced. But I do want to point out that the knowing of vows in the Mishnah is the classic example of something that has no basis in the Torah altogether. In the words of the Mishnah, The right of the court to annul a vow floats in the air. It has no basis. In fact, not only does it have no basis in the Bible, I would say quite the opposite, that it's pretty clear from the Bible that this doesn't exist altogether. That fundamentally, when you take a vow or make an oath, you keep it, even if it has dire consequences. It's only under the most extreme circumstances that we find people not keeping their, their, their oaths or vows. But that's unusual. So the idea of hatarat nidarim, that we, we humans have the ability to, to, to not to fulfill the word that we took in God's name. An oath is taken in God's name. And yet we have the right to say, we made a mistake. It's not binding. It's not valid. That is the classical example of the power of the interpretive tradition. So we enter into Yom Kippur by affirming the interpretive tradition, by affirming our right, and I would say our responsibility, to interpret this tradition. So Yom Kippur is a day about human possibility. One might say human responsibility. We're responsible for the tradition human responsibility. So it's not surprising that the first thing we, the first big piece of the service on Yom Kippur in the Musaf service is the Avodah. And the Avodah is not what it says in the Torah, but the Avodah that we say on Yom Kippur is how we understand what it says in the Torah, namely the Mishnah. And that is the basis of this first piece called the Avodah. Now what's interesting about the Avodah is that before you get to the actual description of the service, and I'll make two points about this, there's an introduction to the Avodah. The introduction is found early on, and the other poems essentially work with this structure. And the structure of the Avodah is such, is the following. It describes creation. It then proceeds to describe the mistakes that were made by human beings after creation the sin of Adam, the sin of Eve, the Tower of Babel, etc., etc., all kinds of idolatry. Uh, and then it talks about Abraham and Jacob and the sons of Jacob and Levi in particular and the priesthood in particular and the high priest in particular. And when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies, the high priest is carrying on his, on his shoulders not just the way of himself and his family in Israel, but the world. There's this single person who enters into the Holy of Holies to confront God and the responsibility to atone 
not just to sanctify the temple and Israel, but the entire world rests, as it were, upon this one person. It reminds us of the responsibility that each one of us could potentially bear. So it talks about creation, but it's a winnowing down when you get to one person and one moment in time. So creation, it begins with creation. Rosh Hashanah is all about creation. Zayom Tchilat Masecha, we say, this is the day of the creation of the human. On Yom Kippur, we also have creation themes, but there it's about restoring creation, reforming creation, uh, re, uh, re, rehabilitating creation. That's the introduction to the Avodah. And the second point I want to make about the Avodah, which makes it different from virtually every other service that we have, is that unlike the other services that we have, we talk about the sacrifices, we, the Muslim, every Muslim service mentions the sacrifices. Sacrifice becomes a kind of aspiration and represents God's presence. But the, in point of fact, we're not reenacting something. When it comes to the avoda of Yom Kippur, we actually see ourselves in the temple. We are actually going back into that temple and seeing ourselves there. It's a kind of mythic leap that we take where we are there in this temple. On Yom Kippur, Muslim, that temple is there, we're there, we're bowing down when we hear the name of God pronounced, etc., etc. It's not just a description, it's a reenactment which is very rare in our tradition. In fact, the only other example of reenactment I can think in classical Jewish prayer would be the, uh, the uh, Hoshanot of Sukkot. We walk around and we are trying to see ourselves once again in the temple, walking around the altar with the lulav, etc. So it's very unusual in that sense. The idea of, of ma making this mystic leap we actually see ourselves there. And that's the first thing that we say after the Chazan asks permission to pray. That's the Avodah. Does anybody have any comments or questions now before I continue? Uh, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, afterwards gave a blessing. Does this fit in at all with the Yom Kippur service, the time of day, the ritual order-wise? Is there a nod or a parallel in our service today to the entry of the Holy of Holies, the incense, maybe the voice of God? Yeah, part, I mean, apart from the, uh, I, I, I would say the following. I would say that, no, I think that the, well, what God is responding is a good question. I think that Yom Kippur, if you talk about the Avod as representing something about the day, it strikes me that there's something about the uh, encounter of the high priest and God. Yes, it's an encounter which is couched in all kinds of, you don't just walk in and see God. The entrance into the Holy of Holies is very dangerous, actually. Standing in God's presence for the human, for the mortal, is dangerous. But the idea of Yom Kippur as a kind of confrontation or encounter, that I think is central to Yom Kippur. And I would say, I think it's different than Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah, there's a sense of standing in God's presence, yes. But it's sort of a surprise. It's sort of, we begin to see ourselves in that way. You have to remember, 
that the Jewish calendar, the way the Jewish calendar is set up prior to Rosh Hashanah, the main day on the calendar is actually Tisha B'Av, which is a day of God's absence. And over the course of the weeks between Rosh Hashanah and Tisha B'Av and Rosh Hashanah, God comes back into our lives. There's a, a, a kind of re-entry. But the idea of this powerful encounter between God and the human, to me, that's, that is a truly Yom Kippur theme, maybe the primary Yom Kippur theme. So I would say, yes, one can see this reenactment and the high priest is entering the, the inner precincts as saying something, as representing something about the very day of Yom Kippur and very powerful a day of Yom Kippur. And that actually leads me into my next point that I wanted to make about what comes next in the, in the, in the service. The first thing is the Avoda. Now, let me just say, uh, limited time, let me just say that- Rabbi Silber? Yes. Before we move on, I just, there's a related question in the chat from about whether you would consider the reenactment as well. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that we caught that before we move on. I, I didn't catch the question. What is the question? Would you consider the Pesach Seder a reenactment in a, in a similar fashion? I would say that it's certainly true. Yes, I, I would say the Pesach Seder, first of all, I said this many times. The Pesach Seder is the core ritual of the Jewish people. It's absolutely core ritual. And yes, in the, in the, in the Seder itself, how God itself says in every generation, we see ourselves as if we personally left Egypt and there is a, a, uh, a custom of, these, of, the, of the Sephardic community to actually stand up and, and to walk around as if we're personally leaving. My own personal view, for whatever it's worth, is that when we say we see ourselves as personally leaving Egypt, uh, my understanding of that, and this is just my understanding of it, there's other ways to understand it, but my understanding has more to do seeing us trying to understand how the way I live today can, is, is, is related to what comes before me. How each generation sees itself as connected to prior generations. But the sense that we're actually in Egypt and walking out, that has not been my experience. Now, different communities, perhaps in the Edot Mizrach community, there's much more a sense of that. But how I was brought up, I never felt it in the same way. As opposed to Yom Kippur, where I think the idea is to actually see yourself there in the temple. That's the bowing down. That's the falling down. It's an actual reenactment. Uh, I would say that in terms of prayer, and this is a whole other conversation, I think that the idea of this mythical leap, I think the idea that when one is praying, for example, in the Musaf, and talking about the sacrifices that we yearn should be returned uh, to the temple. And I'll speak for myself, and I suspect many other people, that's not our fondest hope. We actually don't necessarily care if the sacrifices are brought back to a temple. And in fact, many of us probably say, we don't even want the sacrifices brought back to the temple. Having said all that, when you stand in the Muslim service and pray, you enter into a different mindset. You're entering into a different mythical space. And then the question is, what happens when you leave that mythical space? And I think, and I've said this many times, I think that what I 
sense in the larger American Jewish community is for the most part, one of the things that's missing, many things are missing, but what's missing is this ability to, to connect to, to, to the mythical side. When Shabbat is over and there's a Malavu Malka, and to realize that the prophet Elijah is there and King David is there and ancient Jacob is there. For that, for that time, they're actually with us there. It's not a metaphor, it's like they're there, mythically there, and we are in their presence, and then they leave. But the idea of entering into a different kind of reality, and then when you leave that reality and come back to the one in which we live, to try to figure out how that speaks to us, how that powerful experience speaks to us, I think prayer, uh, when it works, is all about that. So Yom Kippur is an extreme example of it and an obvious example. There, we're actually, it's clear, we are reenacting this. And the point about the reenact, so I don't see Pesach, just thank you for that question, by the way, it's a very excellent point. I don't see the Seder exactly that way, but I wanna make a different point about the, the Avodah. When we finish with this Avodah, and when the high priest walks out of that Holy of Holies and he's safe, he survived, and he's able to, to help bring repentance to the Israel and to the world, there's an unbelievable joy. You, you, you feel the joy. It's a Mare Cohen. You, somehow this is like unbelievable. The world is dancing. That's the sense that you have. And then, right after it describes how the world is dancing and the prayer of the high priest who leaves the Holy of Holies and all that, and then we say in the service, but but the sins of our ancestors destroyed this temple. And our own sins, our own failings, have, have not allowed the temple to be rebuilt. And we have no sacrifices to bring. And, 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 and what words can we say to beseech the king? And that statement, actually, in the classical service of Yom Kippur, which is missing from most Machzorim, that actually leads into the second piece, important piece of the Yom Kippur service, which is called Slichot. If you look at the old Machzorim, if you look at the Machzorim of, say, the Eidot Mizrach, or you look at the Machzorim of the, the German community, German Jewish community, who adhere to the customs, you will see that at that point, there's an entire Slichot service. Most of the Machzorim that we have have chopped out 90% of it. They still retain pieces of the Slichot service. For example, the Slichot service, the section of, of requests concludes with the little, uh, the, the little prayer, Shema Koleinu. So Shema Koleinu you'll find in almost every Machser. But Shema Koleinu was simply the end of Slichot. God hearkened to the cries that we have said before in the Slichot service. Now, what is the Slichot service? The Slichot service is the key service of Yom Kippur, or one of the two key services of Yom Kippur. It is the recitation of God's attributes of mercy. Hashem, Hashem, El Rachum, V'chanun. Those attributes of mercy which God teaches Moses to say, and which, which are found many times within the Bible. Moshe himself uses them twice. The first time being the story of the golden calf. And the golden calf story lies behind the Yom Kippur service. 
And it's interesting where slichot are recited on Yom Kippur. Classically, slichot are recited in all five prayers of Yom Kippur. In many traditional synagogues, however, you'll only find the, slich, the full slichot service kol nidre night, after Mariv. That's one service. And of course, in the Iwa, in the last service of Yom Kippur, we have a slichot service. Over and over again, we beseeching God, the merciful God, Rachel v'chanun, erech ha'payim, rav chesed v'emet. So here's the interesting part about the slichot service. The slichot service in the Ashkenazic rite are recited, for example, let's say Ne'ila. In Ne'ila, when the Chazin repeats the Amida and comes to the prayer called Yahweh V'yavo. Yahweh V'yavo, classical prayer of Yom Tov, of all the festivals, mentions Yom Kippur, and after Yahweh V'yavo begins the Slichot service. And there's the repetition many times, Hashem, Hashem, Erachum, V'chadu. In the Musaf of Yom Kippur, of course, there is no Yahweh V'yavo, but there's the Avodah. And the point of the Slichot service, or the truncated Slichot service that you will find in your Machzorim, Shema Koreinu, Zecharachamecha, it's not the real Slichot service, truncated. How it got truncated is a very fascinating question. Don't have the time to deal with that, but it is truncated. The true, those who have the true traditional service are saying Slichot on Yom Kippur over and over again. Those are the Sephardic Jews and the German Jews and a few others. They keep to the traditions. But in the Torah, what's interesting is, where do we find these Yud Gimel Midot in the Torah? It's Exodus chapter 34. It's after the Golden Calf episode. And the important point here, can't be emphasized enough, is that in the Torah, after the Golden Calf, that's the story that stands behind Yom Kippur. Moses is on the mountain and God informs Moses in chapter 32 of Exodus that the people have made a golden calf and God says, I will destroy them. And Moses on the mountain prays for the people, reminds God of God's promises, God's oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have the oath of the Akedah. And God relents of the evil to destroy God's people. God will not destroy the people. And Moses goes down the mountain. People are dancing around the golden calf. Moshe smashes the tablets. There's a civil war. The people are not destroyed. Some people are killed. And then God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, I will send my angel with you into the land. I will not go with you. Because I'll destroy you. We can't live together. I'll end up destroying you. I'll get angry. You'll anger me. I'll destroy you. And Moses then attempts to reconcile God and the people. And the reconciliation finally works when God gives Moses another opportunity, second set of tablets, and then the tabernacle, the Mishkan, can be built. As long as the tablets are not given to Moshe, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, cannot be built because the, the tablets are the work of God. The workers of the Mishkan can build everything else, but they can't build the tablets. 
So when Moses broke those tablets, there can't be a tabernacle. I will send my angel with you, bring you into the land, land of milk and honey. I'm not going. Translation, no temple. And the people mourned. And Moses attempts to reconcile God and the people, and Moses succeeds. How it works? That's for another time. It works. And the attributes of mercy are the forgiving God. God teaches Moses a way to allow the people and God to dwell together. So what precipitates Selichot in the Torah, Hashem, Hashem, Elachum, V'chanun, is the absence of the temple. So therefore, on Yom Kippur in Musaf, after we describe a temple, it really is there. We're in that temple. We see ourselves as in the temple. It exists. It's real. We're all there. And then suddenly, it's not there. Our sins or our continued missteps have prevented its rebuilding. And that becomes the cause, the impetus for the Slichot service of Yom Kippur. And that's the second piece. So there's the Avoda, there's the Slichot, in whatever form you say them. They've been, they've been excised for the most part from the Machzer for whatever reason. From a structural standpoint, it's a bad mistake, obviously. And there are those who try to put it back in. Rabbi Salvechik was one of them, but the classical servers have the full slichot. The Machzorim have a truncated slichot. And from the slichot, you move to the third core piece of the Yom Kippur service. And the third core piece of the Yom Kippur service is the confession. It is very striking that on Yom Kippur, the order is Avodah, Slichot, and Vidui. The confession, the Alchet, the Ashtamnu, comes after the request for forgiveness. Actually, from a logical standpoint, one easily could have reversed the order. One could have said, first you say, I did this wrong, I did that wrong, I did this wrong, I did that wrong, and then, please God, forgive me for my mistakes. That would make perfect sense. But in point of fact, on Yom Kippur, we don't do that. On Yom Kippur, the way it works is first, the Ashkenazic tradition, first, Slichot, in the repetition of the Amida, and only in the repetition, and then we have the Vidui, or the Viduyim, we have the confessions. I wanted to, that, those are the three pillars of the Yom Kippur service. So on Rosh Hashanah, Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot, Yom Kippur, Avoda, Slichot, and Vidui. The Avoda is only in Musaf. The Slichot and Vidui actually are in all the services of Yom Kippur, though in Shacharit, Musaf, and Mincha, in many congregations, they are, most of it is missing or truncated, just pieces of it, etc. But those are the basic components of the Yom Kippur service. That's the core service. All the other stuff, as powerful and beautiful as it may be, you name it, secondary. Let me say one final word about the Vidui, then I'll take comments and questions. The Vidui, actually, that we say throughout Yom Kippur, is about recalling our mistakes, our sins, our chait, our shamnu, baganu over and over again. The Alchet in particular is very long, 
each letter of the alphabet has two sins attached to it. And then you get to the last prayer of Yom Kippur, which is Ne'ila, the very special prayer of Ne'ila. And there it's interesting that in Ne'ila, there is no Achet. There is a Shamnu, there's the shorter Shamnu. Because since you're asking for Slicha, you have to say you're asking Slicha for what? You have to say, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. What did you do wrong? Shamnu, Bogadnu, Gazalnu, etc. But the Achet is missing. And instead of the Alchet in the Iwa, there's a different prayer, which is the core prayer of the Iwa, the core prayer. And this prayer is different. It's not about, for the most part, the various sins that we have performed. In fact, only one sin is mentioned taking things we shouldn't be taking. The misuse of the world. But the confession of Ni'ila is a different kind of confession. It's not so much what I did wrong. It is a profound reflection on who am I? Who am I? On one hand, from the dust. On the other hand, I stand before God. A helpless sinner, no understanding. Not better than the animals. Akol hevel, all is vanity. Next words, you have set the human being apart and recognized the ability of the human to stand before you. It's a reflection on the various elements and aspects of what it means to be a person. And it calls, I think, for everybody to reflect on who am I? Who am I? What is my task? What is my role? Am I fulfilling my role? Could I do better? Where are my weaknesses? Where I need to improve? It's a reflection upon the human condition at the end of the day that I find very powerful personally. And that's the great prayer of Ni'ila. And that's the Vidui of Ni'ila. So Vidui confession in its different forms is central to Yom Kippur, not to Rosh Hashanah. There's no Srichot Rosh Hashanah. There's no Vidui Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a call to begin a process. The actual encounter with God, as we said earlier, standing fully before God. That's the Yom Kippur theme. So this year we have the many challenges, of course. Challenges provide also opportunities. But what I've tried to do in this little time that we've had together is to reflect upon what is core to the day. It's always important in every discipline to understand what is essential. Rosh Hashanah. Soon upon us, Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot, living in God's world. We are residents in God's world. Yom Kippur, the great encounter. Yom Kippur, focusing on our own uh, selves and thinking about how we could do better. The idea of reconciliation, Avoda, Srichot, and Vidui. If anybody has any comments or questions, I'll take them now. And thank you for your participation. Thank you, Rabbi Silver, for another great cheer uh, and for this really wonderful series. Uh, thank you to everyone for joining us for, for this set of classes over the last few weeks. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed it and found it interesting and can take some of the messages and ideas into the Chagim. 
We do still have more classes coming up this week as well as during the SRMA Chuva to round out our LL program. And you can find information about those at drisha.org slash classes. We will hopefully have more information forthcoming shortly on our shirin that are going to be starting up after the Chagim and our LL program in Israel, which Rabbi Silver mentioned is currently running as well. Those are a series of shirin that are being run in Hebrew in Israel. Uh, information on how to access those uh, and the live streams for those is also available on our website. So feel free to uh, reach out if you have any questions about those. I would be happy to help folks access any of those resources. Uh, but thank you so much again to Rabbi Silber. Thank you all for being here. Shana Tovah.